0: Hi everyone and welcome back to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. This week, I'm actually deviating from the story I had originally planned to tell you today. When I was researching this case throughout the past week, it quickly became obvious to me that this was a story I needed to tell as soon as I could because not nearly enough people are talking about it. The tragedy of this case is particularly, and unfortunately, timely with the racial reckoning that our country is going through. We find ourselves mourning another black individual whose senseless murder hasn't gained nearly enough coverage or consideration. I felt almost a sense of duty to share the information and details of this case to help play at least a small role in making sure that proper justice can be served here. That said, the information and details I was able to collect don't feel like they're nearly enough, Which begs the question, why? Why is it that we don't have more information about what happened on November 3rd, 2018? Why aren't there more details to explain away so many of the baffling questions about what took place that night and makes this case a case built on inconsistencies? And most importantly, why is Tamla Horsford, a Black woman, dead? after spending her last hours alive in the company of only white men and women in one of the most historically racist counties in America. Today, I'm gonna be telling you the story of Tamla Horsford and sharing with you as much information as I could find about this case, which still remains shrouded in confusion and secrecy and contradictions. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Before I tell you about the events of November 3rd, 2018, I think it's important that I tell you a little bit about the history of where these events took place. Tamla Horsford was living in Cumming, Georgia at the time of her death. And this Cumming, Georgia was located in Forsyth County. Forsyth has the distinction of being known as one of the most historically racist counties in the country. And its history of being such dates back over a century. On September 5th, 1912, Ellen Grease, a 22-year-old white woman who is married to a prominent farmer in town, claimed that two black men, Tony Howell and Isaiah Perkle, attempted to rape her. Just four days later, on September 9th, Sleedy Mae Crow, another white woman who was 18 years old at the time, was found dead. She had been raped and beaten to death with enough force that her skull was crushed. Ernest Knox, a 16-year-old Black boy, was her alleged attacker. That September week in Forsyth County saw brutal, bloody attacks waged against the Black community. Tony Howell and Isaiah Perkle were promptly thrown into the Cummingtown Jail, along with three other men who were suspected of having played a role in Ellen Grease's near attack. They were Fate Chester, Johnny Bates, and Joe Rogers. As the news of the arrest traveled through town, Local black preacher Grant Smith was allegedly heard to suggest that perhaps Ellen Grease had been engaging in a consensual affair with one of the men, and she had lied about the events when she'd been discovered. When white townspeople heard of these alleged accusations, Smith was dragged to the town square and horsewhipped. By the time local law enforcement intervened, Smith was near death. The charges of the attempted assault on Ellen Grease were brought against all five They would eventually be dismissed due to lack of evidence. However, Tony Howell allegedly later confessed and he found himself convicted by an all-white jury. The racial tensions of the town only heightened on the morning of September 9th when Sleedy Mae's body was discovered. After finding a pocket mirror at the scene of the crime that was alleged to belong to Ernest Knox, Knox found himself, his friend Oscar Daniel, Oscar's sister Tressie Daniel, who actually went by Jane, And Jane's boyfriend, Robert, also known as Big Rob, Edwards, were all arrested on suspicion of being behind Slady May's death. A neighbor, Ed Collins, was also brought in as an alleged witness. On the way to the jail, a small group of armed white men dragged Knox through the streets and tortured him in a mock lynching, which I don't even know how one would conduct a mock lynching that just sounds so fucking barbaric. And it was during this that Knox allegedly confessed to raping and murdering Sleetie May. In an attempt to avoid the previous attacks that had occurred in the days before to the men accused of being part and parcel to Ellen Grease's alleged attempted rape, law enforcement took Knox to a jail in Atlanta instead. Their efforts didn't really do much at all to curtail the white population of the town, though. The four other suspects, Oscar, Jane, Big Rob, and Ed Collins, were all brought to the Cummingtown Jail. By the time they arrived, a crowd of about 2,000 enraged white townspeople had gathered. By the end of the afternoon, the mob would number 4,000 and they would begin to attack the jail. In the course of the attack, Big Rob was shot and killed in the cell he was held in. His body was dragged through the streets and hanged on a telephone pole in the town square. A deputy sheriff managed to hide the three other suspects from the lynching, while the head deputy, Sheriff Reed, well, according to reports, he simply, quote, left the vicinity. So, way to do your duty, sir. By October, the charges against Jane Daniel and Ed Collins had been dismissed. Artis Knox and Oscar Daniel, however, were tried by an all-white jury, quickly found guilty of rape and murder, and sentenced to hang on October 25th. Public hangings were prohibited at the time, but the fence that had been constructed around the gallows conveniently burnt down the night before. Thus, it was that despite state law, the deaths of teenagers, Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel became public executions with crowds between 5,000 and 8,000 gathering to watch. The town population itself was reportedly 12,000 at the time, just to give you a visual. I also feel it's important to note that the murder of Sleedy May Crow is still considered unsolved, despite hanging two teenage boys for the crime. In the months following the events of September 1912, enraged white towns people would take it upon themselves to harass, terrorize, and otherwise drive their black neighbors from coming in Forsyth County at large. Property was destroyed, the threat of lynchings hung in the air, livestock was murdered. Signs began appearing at the town limits throughout the county warning black people to quote, not let the sun set on them. These signs would create the boundaries for hideous sunset towns. The message was clear. If you found yourself in one of these towns after sunset, you as a black person, your safety was not guaranteed. A particular group of white men called the Night Riders led these attacks, though in reality, they were nothing more than a gang of racist thugs held bent on conducting a racial expulsion of their town. And with all their threats, both perceived and acted upon, a racial expulsion is exactly what took place. By year's end, a reported 98% of the Black population in Forsyth County had abandoned their lives and been driven out of town. These events would leave a tangible stain on the town of Cumming Forsyth County for years to come. In 1987, Oprah brought her talk show, that had only been on the air for five months at the time, to the town known for its lack of diversity that ran so deep, no black person had lived in the town for over 75 years. Forsyth at the time had been in the news due to the violent hostile reactions certain townspeople had displayed against civil rights movements, protests taking place. And yes, I said the year correctly. It was 1987 and civil rights were still being debated in certain areas of the Deep South. Even 33 years later, not much has changed the landscape of diversity in Forestop County. Today, the population is reported to only be 3.6% Black. And it's here, in this county known for its deeply rooted ties to racism and segregation, that Tamla Horsford would spend her last night alive. Tamla Horsford, affectionately called Tam or Tammy by her loved ones, was 40 years old in November 2018. She was the mother of five sons who ranged in age between 14 years old and four years old, and her husband had a daughter from a previous marriage, but Tamla loved her like she was her own. This stepdaughter was due to give birth in just a few weeks, and Tamla couldn't have been more excited to meet the new baby. By all accounts, Tamla was an active, involved member of her community and especially with her boys' schools. She was a homemaker, and could usually be found volunteering at the schools her boys attended. She was very engaged with the activities made available throughout her subdivision, and overall, her nature as being a very social butterfly was pretty well known. That streak of boundless social energy and warmth might be the reason why it wasn't so strange that she accepted an invitation to an adult sleepover comprised of self-described football moms that Tamla wasn't exceedingly close with. Jean Myers was throwing herself a 45th birthday party at her home and coming, and she had grown friendly with Tamla from spending time together on the sideline of their son's games. The other women in attendance have said that they mostly didn't know Tamla all that well, but made it a point to remark about how very social they found her on the night of November 3rd. So it was, with a tequila bottle in hand as a birthday gift, Tamla arrived to Jean house at around 8 p.m. where she had been told to expect an evening of swimming, watching a college football game, enjoying snacks, and sharing drinks with a group of other women. A rare treat for Tamla who is usually surrounded by so many boys. Three men were also actually in attendance as well. Jean's boyfriend, Jose Barrera, who lived with her, and two other men, Michael and Scott. Now, I'm not going to be sharing the last names of all the other guests in attendance because the lawyer that is representing all of them seems pretty trigger happy with filing lawsuits against anyone speaking out about the case. And as we all know, I am not here to be sued. So nobody sue me. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. My ass is now covered legally. However, that's still said. I am going to lay out for you a guest list, if you will, so we can have a general understanding of who our cast of characters is made up of. They include Jean Myers, the homeowner and self-proclaimed birthday girl. Jose Barrera, Jean's boyfriend, who work as a pre-trial services officer. This will be important later. (laughs) Madeline Lombardi, Jean's aunt. She lived in the lower level apartment of Jean's house and attended the party for a short while. Other guests include Nicole, Sarah, Bridget, Marcy, Paula, Jen, Tom and Stacy, a husband and wife duo, and a man named Michael. And, of course, Tamla. Now that we have our main players, let me set the scene of November 3rd, 2018 for you. According to police transcripts, guests for this little house party began arriving around 7pm, while Tamla arrived around 8 or 8.30 after she had fixed dinner for her small tribe of boys. Though she had come bearing the gift of tequila... Jean stated that she wasn't much of a tequila drinker, so Tamla ended up making drinks with it for herself throughout the night. The guests ate gumbo, watched the LSU versus Crimson Tide football game, I feel compelled to say Roll Tide here, and obviously they had some drinks. Aunt Madeline claims that she, quote, retired at the halftime mark, said her goodnights, and went down to her private apartment for a bath before heading to bed. This wasn't all that surprising because Madeline was several years older than the rest of the crew in attendance. At the point of Madeline going downstairs to her apartment, the men came upstairs from the den that they'd been hanging out in on the lower level and never really went back downstairs. Snapchat videos and photos released of the night show the guests all having what seemed to be a relatively fun time. There are several pictures of the group smiling and laughing on the couch, playing games of Cards Against Humanity, And several selfies show Tamla grinning widely and showing off her Dalmatian printed pajama onesie. Like I said, though, there was a lot of drinking going on that night and indications that some potweed marijuana drug smoking may have also taken place. Tamla was the only cigarette smoker of the group and she did step out onto the deck that was attached to the main level of the house to smoke on occasion throughout the night. In her interview with police, Jean later claimed that Tamla smoked weed on the deck, but seemingly stopped after one time because Jean, quote, fussed at her for smoking in front of her LEO-associated boyfriend. She also made the entirely fucking weird claim of gossip that another woman who wasn't even in attendance at the party asked one of the other women who was at the party if Tamla had done cocaine that night, which is allegedly sort of an explanation for why she had been so friendly that evening. Which, like, that's a far fucking leap and a stretch. In reading the transcript where this was mentioned, it was a really strange piece of gossip, honestly, that Jean seemed to insert into her interview. Like, why are you suggesting this woman who was found dead had possibly done cocaine as suggested by someone who wasn't even at the party on top of having smoked weed and imbibed heavily all in one night? Toxicology reports have proven uh, THC and alcohol were present in Tambo's system when she died. So again, just a really strange insertion of nothing more than what seems like gossip while you're being interviewed by police about your friend's death that took place at your house. Priorities. (laughs) As they do, the party began to wind down later in the evening. Two of the women, Nicole and Sarah, left around 1130 that night to relieve the babysitters they had hired and to take care of their pets. The rest of the attendees helped put one of the women to bed because, as Jean put it, she was, quote, wasted. At around 1230 or so, Tamla allegedly remarked that she was thinking of driving because she, quote, wanted to go home. However, allegedly, Jean, Tom, and Stacy all encouraged her not to drive because she'd been drinking, which is obviously the right move. However, despite refusing to let her drive, Jean would later tell police that Tamla didn't seem drunk at all, which confused her, Tom and Stacey because the guests would also later claim in their own interviews that Tamla had drank so much tequila, only one eighth of the bottle she had brought was found in the next morning by police. Could you, I don't know, maybe get your story straight? (laughs) Like, is she absolutely hammered like the other party guest who had to be put to bed or is she handling her liquor fine? It's just, this is just one of those inconsistencies that continuously crops up in this case. In any regard, Tamla did not drive home. Most guests who stayed over reportedly headed to bed around Mm 1.30. Just about 15 minutes after most people allegedly went to bed, party attendee Bridget would seem to be the last person to see Tamla alive. Jean's security system was set up so that any time any of the doors of the house were opened or closed, an alert was sent to her phone. At 1.47 a.m., Tamla reportedly was sitting at the kitchen counter, having fixed herself another bowl of gumbo, and waved Bridget off as she walked out the front door since her husband had arrived to pick her up. What happened next is, honestly, currently anyone's guess. The home security system registered that the front door opened and closed in the span of one minute at 1.47 a.m. At 1.49 a.m., the back door leading onto the deck opened. It signaled it closed at 1.50 a.m. At 1.57 a.m., the back door again opened, but never closed. There were no new notifications sent by the home security system throughout the course of the next few hours. At 410 on what is now Sunday morning, November 4th, 2018, doors start opening again. At this time, it was reported that Marcy had left through the front door to go to work. At 745 a.m., Paula left via the front door as well. At 830 a.m., Tom and Stacy made their departure through the front door themselves. And at 8.45 a.m., Aunt Madeline went to the window to see what the day's weather was looking like, and through the glass, she could see, quote, those Dalmatian pajamas covering a figure who was laid flat on the grass. In true Southern fashion, and I am not kidding, this was verbatim what Madeline told the police, she, quote, (laughs) got on her knees and said a prayer before going upstairs to knock on Jean and Jose's bedroom door. They didn't answer the first time she knocked, so instead she went back downstairs, looked out the window again, splashed some water on her face, and then went back to knock on the couple's bedroom door again. Jean called her into the room, and Madeline explained that there's, quote, something wrong with one of her friends from the night before, and she wants Jose to, quote, come look. My question is, okay, sure, Jose works in the court system, so I can kind of understand why she would go to him. But regardless, why the fuck weren't you on the phone with nine one one or at least going outside to actually check on her instead of just gaping out the window? Jean, Jose, and Madeline all finally go outside to see if they can determine what all is happening. Jen, the overly tipsy friend from the night before, is the last guest at the house and asks what's going on? And it's now eight fifty nine AM after fifteen minutes, Madeline first noticed where Tamla's prone figure was lying face down the yard. It was then that someone finally decided to place a call to 911. I think it's important to note here that during the initial coverage of the case, there have been accusations made that Madeline actually discovered the body at 730, and that there was then an unexplained, almost two hour gap between discovering Tamla's body and calling authorities. I know we all love a good conspiracy, but those initial reports were, in my opinion, Inaccurate because there was actually genuine confusion about the timing of the events on the morning of November 4th. Because it was daylight savings that day. (laughs) And who amongst us does not get screwed up when daylight savings occurs in either fashion? Falling, what is it? Falling, spring forward, fall back, all that good stuff. During Madeline's interview, the police themselves were recorded going back and forth about the timing of the morning because they too were a little confused. However, I think it's safe to say that this timeline, the 8:45 first sighting of Tamla and then the 8:59 call to 911 is accurate and there was no length gap, lengthy gap of time between seeing Tamla and calling for help. However, even with that out of the way, the 911 call is still a bit weird. Jean places the call and begins to almost like both set the scene for their evening and in my view It almost seems like she's crafting an alibi or creating an explanation for what's happening in front of her. I'm going to read some parts of the transcript for you so you can hear it for yourself. Jean, I need an ambulance to my home. We had people over last night. We were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking. And we just went outside and she's laying face down in the backyard. It looks like maybe, I'm guessing she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff dispatcher okay is she breathing jean i don't know but she's face down at this jean seems to get overwhelmed and passes the phone to jose jose hops on the line and says quote she is not moving one bit She is not breathing she's completely face down in the yard she is stiff dispatcher do you see blood or anything jose i don't know if i should move her she's completely face down and then jose also makes mention of a cut he sees on her wrist going on to say, quote, I don't know if this cut is self-inflicted. A few quick things here. One, Jose knew CPR. Obviously, I didn't read the entire transcript to you guys, but you can listen to the call for yourselves. Now leave a link in the show notes so you can find it. But it needs to be noted that Homeboy spent a lot of time seeming to deflect from questions by the dispatcher, and he didn't even attempt CPR. Actually, apparently no one attempted to give Tama any sort of medical attention or assistance. At one point, Jose tries to bend her leg to see if rigor mortis has set in, which like, what? I know we shouldn't judge people on their reactions during a time of crisis, but good God, man, you're well-versed in life-saving techniques and supposed to be relatively quick on your feet to assist people in situations just like this as required for your job. And you're just mosing around poking a woman's body instead of trying to actually help. Secondly, what the fuck is with the insinuation that Tamla may have cut her wrist on purpose? Because I don't like that one bit. And thirdly, if you listen to the transcript yourselves, I find the tone and manner of both Jean and Jose so strange. Jean does pass the phone to Jose after her initial conversation with the dispatcher, but besides that, neither of them seem truly bothered by finding their friend face down in the yard. I also think it's a little eyebrow raising with how quickly they begin suggesting Tamla fell off the deck. Like you guys jumped on that train real quick, as opposed to waiting for professionals to arrive and start evaluating the scene. Were these seeds trying to be planted? At 9.07 a.m., the ambulance arrives and law enforcement arrives shortly after to begin the investigation. All of the previous night's guests are called to return to the home and at 10:47 a.m. on November 4th, 2018, Tamla Hornsford is pronounced dead. Forsyth County police began the process of investigating just what the frick had gone down at John Meyer's home in Cumming, Georgia. It feels generous to call their looking into Tamla's death and investigation, to be quite honest, which is one of the biggest points of contention with this case. The lead investigator for the case was a detective Michael Christian. He described the scene at John's house as such, quote, Tamma was located in the backyard in a prone position. She was laying with her head away from the residence and her feet toward the residence. Her left arm was at an approximately 40 degree angle from her body and the forearm and hand were bent further toward her head in the approximately 10 o'clock position. Her right arm was straight and by her side with the hand approximately six inches from the leg. Her legs were straight behind her with both feet pointing to the right. With the permission of Deputy Coroner Bowen, Tamla was turned over. Most notable when Tamla was turned over was the fact she had come to rest face down. Her head had not been canted to one side or the other. Tamla's right wrist was fractured or dislocated. There was a large bump where her wrist met her hand as well as a cut over the bump as if the bone had cut the skin from the inside. They were matching defects on both of Tamla's shins. These corresponded with a piece of metal landscaping edging which stood up approximately one inch from the surrounding ground. Other than the broken wrist and cuts on her shins, no obvious signs of injury presented themselves. Once it was determined that Tamla was, in fact, dead, her body was transported to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Headquarters to await an autopsy, which took place two days later on November 6th. The GBI's associate medical examiner, Andrew, and I am going to butcher this, Andrew Coop Miners, yeah, Coop Coop Miners, yep, okay, performed the autopsy. And fair warning, this might be a little gross and gory to some, since I'm going to share some of the details of his findings, so gird your loins if you're of a delicate constitution. Coop Miners found several blunt force injuries on Tamla's body that seemed, in his opinion, consistent with a fall. Her toxicology report stated that her BAC was 0.238, which is almost... Three times the Georgia legal limit, so sure, one could see how Tamla falling is a possibility. What strikes me as odd about this, though, is the fact that almost every interview transcript I read from the guests at John's party, almost everyone remarked how not drunk Tamla appeared and how completely normal she was acting, despite allegedly drinking almost the entirety of a bottle of tequila by herself. THC was also found in her system, which isn't surprising because we know that Tamla had smoked weed at some point throughout the night. What is surprising though, is that apparently Xanax was also found in her system and Tamla wasn't prescribed it as far as we know. Popping pills is a party thing on occasion, sure, but not one of the guests shared with police that any pills were being passed around that night. So with Tamla not having a subscription for the drug and no one seemingly aware, than anyone else was supplying the slumber party crew with pills upon asking. The question is, where did she get the Xanax? The summary of Coop Miner's report, I can't say that with a straight face. (laughs) Coop Miner's report states this. Autopsy revealed severe injuries of the head, neck, and torso, including subarachnoid hemorrhaging, which is bleeding in the space between the brain and skull, subdural hemorrhage, bleeding between the brain and the membrane that surrounds the brain, fracture of the second cervical vertebra, so broken neck, and a laceration of the heart. Other injuries include abrasions of the face, left arm, left hand, and left leg, lacerations of the right wrist and right leg, and a dislocation of the right wrist. The observed injuries are consistent with those received in a fall. Consistent with a fall. I've got to chime in here. At my alma mater, which does indeed happen to be in the South, the party culture there is a lot, given that we were more or less teenagers left smack dab in the middle of nowhere, with nothing else to do in terms of recreation than to be part of the Greek system and drink. And admittedly, there was a lot of drinking at my college and accidents, pretty severe ones to be honest, happened almost at least once a semester. Every year of my undergrad experience, there was at least one truly terrible accident to befall a student. The amount of people who were hit by cars is alarming, to say the least, but there are also a fair few people who would leap off frat house roofs during day drinking parties and that never killed or seriously injured anyone more than bumps, scrapes, strains, the general drunken idiocy injuries. So you're telling me that fractured vertebrae, brain bleeding... Multiple lacerations and abrasions, different from contusions sidebar, which I will get into later, a dislocated wrist, a cut wrist, and a fucking three-fourths of an inch inch laceration to her heart were the result of a drunken fall, even if the fall was from 15 feet. I, I, I don't know. In the words of the little elephant dude from Tarzan, seems questionable to me. And also I want to note, I am pretty sure those Frat house roofs were taller than the 15 feet Tamla allegedly fell off of. Another thing that's really setting my red flag' it's a waving. the height of the deck itself, a little thing called gravity and some physics. The deck John's house is measured about 15 feet in total height, with the railing being a little over three feet. I've already said that given that Tamla's BAC is almost three times the legal limit. Sure. I can subscribe to the idea that girlfriend was probably unsteady on her feet and liable to have a stumble or two. Even though sidebar, her family later came out to say that even at her drunkest state, Tamla was not one to fall over or fall down when drinking. However, this is where my subscription to the idea Tamla fell ends and physics kicks in. Tamla herself was about five feet, five inches. Like we've already stated, the deck itself was about 15 feet tall and the balcony railings were just over three feet. It stands to reason, then, if you're keeping track at home, that Tamla's center of gravity would have kept her upright and prevented her from falling over the railing. So, again, I'm finding it hard to believe she would have just flopped over the railing from a drunken stumble and landed face first when that seems to go against physics itself. (laughs) That's another thing that's odd about the state of Tamla's positioning and the ME's autopsy finding. In several police documents, officers remarked and made note of how she had appeared to have landed face first, face down in the grass. One officer quite literally wrote in his report, quote, most notable was she had come to rest face down. So again, you mean to tell me this woman plummeted 15 feet and landed face first, but nowhere in the autopsy were there any findings of any nasal or facial fractures despite this woman apparently landing face fucking first. Or even, what about her teeth? I, <laughs> I am an absolute lunatic about my own teeth because I have two dental implants. So shout out orthodontia and periodontal treatment magic. So like, oh my God, even talking about this is making my hands sweat. But one would think it's safe to assume that an individual falling 15 feet and landing on their damn face would have had some rather severe damage to the, the dental region at least. Such was not the case, though, because nowhere in any reports are there any indications that Tamla's face suffered during the fall. Despite all these hashtag questions, medical examiner Coop Miners released his findings in February 2019. Reminder, this all took place November 2018. On February 5th, Coop Miners went to the mat with this and is quoted in his summary as saying, quote, In light of the autopsy findings and investigative information, the cause of death is multiple blunt force injuries and the manner of death is accident. Sure, coop miners. I want to back up quickly for a moment to December 2018, just a few weeks after Tamla's death. On December 18th, Jose pops back into the picture because he was placed on administrative leave from his job as a pre-trial services officer in the Forsyth County court system. Why was he placed on leave, you might be asking? Because Jose, technically a representative of the law, had used his position and access, as said representative of the law, to access confidential files in the county system. Files, it later turned out, that were apparently related to the investigation into Tamla's death. Two days later, Jose Barrera was fired. But this turn of events didn't even really come to light until February 1st, 2019, when a complaint was filed against Jose by Michelle Wynne Graves. Michelle was one of Tamla's dearest friends, and she's been a staunch advocate fighting for Tamla's case to get the justice and proper investigation it deserves. Michelle claims she'd been facing harassment and believes Jose used his access to the online terminal to disseminate her private information to five other people. Five people who are listed as being witnesses in the investigation surrounding Tamla's death. Three guesses, first two don't count as to who those people might be. The news of Jose's firing in December 2018, like I said, didn't get much notice until February 1st, 2019 when Michelle filed her complaint. It was then that this news, that of a law enforcement employee who was connected to a mysterious death and had used more or less professional clout, to gain access to information about that mysterious death, started to gain some traction with the media. Conveniently, though, just days after Michelle's complaint was filed and Inquiry Minds started probing into what all was going down in Forsyth County, the official autopsy report was released on February 6th. Two weeks later, on February 19th, Forsyth County officially closed Tamla's case citing the death as accidental and that there was certainly nothing to see here, folks. Not so, according to Ralph Fernandez, the lawyer that the Horsford family hired. After the force of county investigators and GBI closed the case, Tamla's own father actually came out to say he was, quote, happy they closed the case because now this allowed the family to have their own experts examine the case and start what they hoped to be an unbiased investigation. The family actually requested a second autopsy done out of state by an independent medical examiner because they were so jaded and distrustful of the job done in Georgia. This second autopsy's results have yet to be made public, but according to Ralph Fernandez, there are, quote, extensive injuries that weren't noted in the first autopsy. Injuries, he claims, that indicate the, quote, strong possibility of homicide. Though Forsyth County wants us to believe that this is an open and shut case, I and many other people who know the details of this case have several hashtag questions that lead me to think otherwise. Let's dive into them before I tell you where the case stands now in 2020. In our general timeline of the evening, it's noted that several doors were open and closed throughout the night, thanks to the alerts Jean was receiving on her phone by the security system. The back door was opened at 1.57 a.m., Everyone prior to this had been conscientious about closing doors when stepping back onto the back porch. So why wasn't it closed this time? Did someone purposely leave it open? And if so, why? And more to the point, who? Why didn't Madeline immediately call 911 when she saw Tamla's body? Or at the very least, go outside to get a better grasp on the scenario. Why didn't anyone at the scene before law enforcement and the ambulance showed up try to give Tamla CPR or any other life-saving assistance. Jose was certified in it, but he just seemed content to poke and prod Tamla's body while on the phone with the dispatcher. When speaking with the 911 dispatcher, Jose claimed that they had cameras in the backyard that he offered to let investigators see during the course of the investigation. Later, it came out that either they never actually had cameras in the back or that the tape somehow didn't catch that night's activities. If, they didn't have cameras at Jean's house. Why say otherwise? And if they did have them, why weren't any tapes recorded that night? Or were there tapes recorded that night? Tamla's body had several lacerations and abrasions on it. Abrasions are more like scrapes, while contusions could be bumps and bruises. I find it really weird that she has scrapes and cuts as opposed to bruises on her body after allegedly falling 15 feet. you think she'd be covered in bumps and bruises from falling that way as opposed to being scraped up. My question here is what the hell is up with that? How the hell did Tamla not sustain any facial, nasal, or dental injuries, despite as it has been noted several times, she landed face first slash face down. If Tamil really did fall face first, It's strange that her head actually stayed straight down. Investigators noted it was weird. Her head hadn't turned or canted to the side. Again, to this instance, my main question is, what the hell is up with that? The time of injury on Tamla's autopsy report is stated as being 1.30 a.m., but that's impossible because Tamla was seen alive and interacting with other sleepover guests at that time. Is this just lazy reporting or, again, what the hell is up with this? (laughs) Why were not any photos taken during Cooper Miner's autopsy? This goes against standard procedure and begs a lot of questions. What's the situation with alleged post-mortem injuries that have been substantiated by the Horsford family's lawyer? Did something happen before Tamla's body was discovered by Madeline at 8.45? And if so, what happened and who had contact with her body? How was there no blood at the scene? even with Tamla's wrist being noticeably cut. Where was the Xanax that was found in Tamla's system from? How did it get into her system? At some point during the night, Tamla claimed she wanted to go home. She had seemingly intended to save the night, but with her pajamas and having different bags. So what, if anything, happened that made her want to leave? On Jean's Facebook, she made a comment about the situation just days after Tamla's body was discovered, stating, quote, the police know she didn't fall. Tamla falling off the deck was one of the first things out of her mouth when she was on the phone with 911 and in general seemed to be somewhat of a party line for everyone there that morning. What the hell was this Facebook comment about then? Why would she say police knew Tamla didn't fall? During Madeline's police interview, it is, <laughs> it is straight up recorded and I cannot believe the audacity of this. It was straight up recorded that John burst into the room during so and tried to give the investigators gift cards, claiming that, quote, police like Duncan, right? Obviously, the investigators started down with, a we literally cannot accept these because obviously they could be seen as a bribe. But I'm going to ask the question again. What the hell is up with that? <laughs> what was it? Final question. That Jose was looking for when he used his professional credentials, professional credentials, to access the confidential information about Tamla's investigation. And did he find what he was looking for? At the beginning of the episode, I told you all that I felt called to share this case with you ahead of schedule because of how timely and important I feel it is. And these past few weeks have proven even more so that this case is definitely timely. On June 4th, truly just 11 days before you're hearing this, Ralph Fernandez wrote and released a letter he had written to Leander, Tamla's husband. Reminder, Ralph is the family lawyer that they've hired now that the investigation has been closed by of County. In the letter, Fernandez dropped several bombshells. First and foremost, Fernandez writes, quote, The review of the case reflects that a homicide is a strong possibility. Witness statements are in conflict. A potential sub- subject handled the body as well as the evidence prior to law enforcement arrival. The letter goes on to say, quote, a remarkable fact is that there were no photographs taken during the autopsy of Tamla's body. This had been done at someone's directive because such a practice is unheard of. Fernandez goes on to say that, quote, it appears Tamla was involved in a struggle. There were abrasions noted consistent with that scenario. There were parallel scratches to one arm. The letter goes on to state the difficulties of getting the records from the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office, pointing out, quote, the case agent was a close friend of a subject who turned out to be the leak of the ongoing investigation. Fernandez states, quote, I have come to the conclusion that the truth never had a chance here. Fernandez then makes this stunning accusation that there might be a cover-up at play. He writes, quote, my years of experience lead me to believe that 80% of cases where African-Americans die under mysterious circumstances end up closed or cold because there are no videos and the only witnesses are bad guys or good guys that are deep down really are bad. Then you have cases where law enforcement does a poor job and cares little to investigate thoroughly because of some connection or association to the perpetrators. Take the Ahmad Aubrey slaying recently. Without the video surfacing in the media, there would never have been an arrest in that cozy relationship between the perpetrators, prosecutors, and the investigators. Fernandez closes out his letter by saying, quote, those who wear the badges and were entrusted with the investigatory task failed you. But this is not over. It will never be over. Be safe. Be strong. We will get to the bottom of this. Talk about shots fucking fired. Am I right? (laughs) It would seem that letters are the theme of the last few weeks in regards to this case because just three days ago on Friday, June 12th, another letter was released, this time from Forsyth County Sheriff Ron Freeman. And in this letter, he officially requested the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to open their own investigation into Tamla's death. After weeks and months of Tamla's loved ones asking important questions and demanding the best from law enforcement working this case of over 500,000 people petitioning to have her case reopened and her name being chanted alongside others names in the protests that have been taking place throughout this country to fight against police brutality and the institutional injustices so often taken against black individuals, Tamla Horsford has been heard and seen and championed. At 4.27 p.m. on that same Friday, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation agreed to Sheriff Freeman's request, and they will be opening Tamla's case to conduct their own investigation. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't hopeful. I am hopeful Tamla's family and loved ones get the closure that they so desperately deserve. I'm hopeful her case gets the respectful, thorough investigation it always needed. And I'm hopeful that Tamla, this fun-loving, kind, warm-hearted Black mother who died a tragic death, gets the justice she too deserves. And that this is the beginning of real, tangible change throughout Forsyth County that has been long, long overdue. To Tamla and her family, I truly, truly hope this is the beginning of justice for you. And to those who are just learning about this case, I encourage you, say her name, and say it loud. I'll be sure to share updates about this case as they come in with you all, both here on the podcast and on social media. You can follow Dark as Hell on Instagram at darkashellpodcast, all one word, and over on Twitter at darkashellpod, again, all one word. The Dark as Hell Patreon is in its fledgling baby state, and I'll be adding cool ways to support the podcast in the next week or so, but for now, you can check it out at patreon.com slash Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever streaming platform you're utilizing if you're liking what you're hearing. I'll be back next week telling you the story about one of the cases that has haunted and captured my imagination for years. You're really not going to want to miss this because, trust me, it's going to get dark as hell. (laughs) And with that, thanks for listening. I'll see you here next week, more than ready, to get dark as hell all over again. (laughs)